A disclaimer that this episode contains discussion of mental illness and suicide. Australia Explained, keeping you on top of all things down under. In this episode of Australia Explained, we break down Australia's mental health system, the good, the bad, and where it all seems to be heading. Hello everyone, my name is Tanya Ragusa. And I'm Vanessa Di Grazia. And welcome to yet another episode of Australia Explained. As always, we'd like to start by acknowledging that we're recording this podcast on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and we pay our respects to their elders past, present and future. This is particularly important this week as it is NAIDOC week, which is a national week of recognition for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people within Australia. And this year's theme is Always Was always will be, uh, referencing back to the fact that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities uh, were the first inhabitants of this land for hundreds of years before um, colonisation. So just to point that out, very important that you research what land you're on and, and get in touch with your local resources. We are super excited to bring you this episode about mental health. Uh, Spotlight has been shone on it this year in a big way. Um, COVID's been really tough and has tested the capacity of our system in a really, really huge way. And it's also been politicised really heavily, especially here in Victoria. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, in terms of the lockdown as well, the mental effects of Victoria's lockdown was a big talking point. Um, But we really wanted to help you guys navigate the reality of the mental health system in Australia especially given its coverage this past year. And while we consider ourselves to be rather intelligent in all of that, we are not experts in this field. And as we do when we find ourselves unqualified to talk on a topic that is still very necessary and very interesting, we have a wonderful guest with us here today. So Julia McCarthy is a psychologist with over 10 years experience and has worked in a bunch of settings such as in juvenile detention and even provided therapy to the families after the Black Saturday bushfires. So we could think of nobody more dynamic, experienced and downright amazing to help us with this episode. So Julia, a huge welcome. How are you doing today? Yeah, good, thank you. Um, thanks for having me on. We're so excited. So let's get into it. Okay, let's start as always with the basic history. So nowadays, mental and physical health are treated as very separate disciplines But before Australia was invaded and there were over 500 Indigenous nations stretching over this land, holistic health was the norm. And for our research, we used the work of Helen Milroy, who was a psychiatrist and professor from the Palku Nation. And obviously it differed nation to nation, but in many Aboriginal communities, mental, physical, cultural and spiritual health were all seen as interrelated. Um, Culturally, community was strongly valued as well as a great diet and general physical health. And this meant that lots of the mental illnesses that we see really commonly today were pretty rare. Um, In summary, life was good. Yeah. And although I'm sure that there's very likely mental health problems did exist, you know, such as psychosis disorders like schizophrenia, Milroyd concludes that it's most likely that the cultural tendency to allow people to release hostile feelings rather than bottle them up inside, reduced to the added trauma that usually accom- that usually accompanies these these diseases. And Torres Strait Islander communities, which are those people who live in the Torres Strait between Australia and Papua New Guinea, um, we have a definition and map of this on our Instagram highlight if you want to check it out. 
But these communities had a similar approach to, I guess, that uh, community care, but different systems of implementing their beliefs. Yeah, all in all, First Nations peoples were deeply connected with community bonds um, and that basically all went down the gutter when Australia was invaded and that lifestyle was broken apart. Mm. Now, looking at the British settlement in Australia, like many other Christian countries, mental illness was viewed in close relation to religion and morality. Think God versus the devil, possession, witches, evil forces, that kind of thing. And it was restrained as such. Um, Shackles were commonly used and people that were mentally ill were treated like dangerous criminals. Yeah, definitely. Um, in In 1843, sorry, the Lunacy Act was involved in Victoria and this changed a lot of the landscape in Australia. Um... It was part of this global shift towards the need for medical treatment for people with with mental illness, and it gave responsibility to the government for providing care for the mentally ill. This also marked the beginning of decriminalisation, so you you know you you weren't going to be shackled up or or jailed or imprisoned for having a mental illness. Ten years later, after a government inquiry, superintendents who were essentially like the managers and the security guards. Um, for these places were replaced with doctors Um, and this marked the beginning of humane treatment and it's kind of scary to think that there was a point in time where uh, people who cared for the mentally ill were not trained in mental illness it's a big mismatch there so we see this practice of psychology and psychiatry start to grow worldwide Um, The first schizophrenia drug was released in 1951 and in the next few years you see new drugs keep being invented like Valium and Xanax. Um, So this gave the ability to medically manage mental health. And this study, study of mental illness and health continued, but a major shift came throughout the 80s when this idea of deinstitutionalization became popular. So basically this championed the rights for people to live a normal life in the community rather than being sedated off in big asylums. It started to recognize how justice, um, economic, sociological and epidemiological issues were all interconnected. So a lot of these big asylums were broken up and community care was focused on. How can we care for people in their homes, etc., ensuring that they're able to have a normal and full life? Um, and that's where you saw this change from having strong male nurses that were called lunatic attendants to the broad network of social workers, therapists, caseworkers, etc., that we see today. A lot has changed. Yeah, a lot has changed. Okay, so Julia... Give us an overview of mental health in Australia. What's the difference between mental illness and mental health, all those things? Sure, I think they're really good questions because mental health um, has become a big agenda after and during COVID. So mental health is something we all have. We all have mental health. We all have physical health. So part of that means it's just our, our feelings, our thoughts, our emotions and just our general mental well-being. So how we manage stress. The difference between a mental illness is it's a set of symptoms that significantly affect someone's functioning. And these symptoms affect how someone thinks, how they feel, how they act, and how they interact with others. So I think the the part about the interfering with functioning is really a main difference. Right. And give us some some stats and information about Australia. What's the prevalence um, of mental illness in Australia? So currently 20% of Australians um, experience a mental illness. So that's one in five. Uh, So 16 to 85-year-olds may experience a mental illness in any year. 
the most common would be depression, anxiety and substance use currently in Australia. And typically the onset of a mental illness is between the ages of 18 to 24. So a lot more prominent than I guess any lay person would expect. Yeah, that's right. And look, the most common is anxiety. Um, And I guess the scary part is that what we know is around 50% of those people don't access treatment. Some really good information. Um, So we spoke about deinstitutionalization earlier, which was moving away from asylums, etc., and encouraging things like home care. Do you see that shift as successful? I do. Um, I think that we've come, you know, leaps and bounds. And I guess one of the examples that I could think of was um, part of that deinstitutionalization in Victoria. Um, so you sort of think of the 1950s, I think about a client group that I sort of, you know, worked with at one time. So they're probably in their late, you know, eight, probably 80s now. But at that time, um, they came from big asylums and a lot of their carers, so their families basically, um, came together and set up some housing. So sometimes some of it was government funded, but sometimes these families actually funded to have their children basically live in the community in a supported environment. And that's really what we see on the more severe end now, that there is this option where people can live in community-supported housing, but also that um, for a lot of people that they can access treatment in the community and live at home or live wherever they want to live. I've seen some commentary that some people might slip through the cracks because it's so decentralised. Do you think that's a fair assumption? or um, That is a fair assumption. Um, definitely depends on someone's illness. It depends on, you know, so there's so many factors that can affect someone's access to service. Um, and we've seen that probably even again, there's a new wave of that, I guess, with um, NDIS, which the government have rolled out, which is the National Disability Insurance Scheme. So there are pros and cons, um, but I think there are still people still are unfortunately falling through the gaps. Do you think that the shift towards, I guess, home care destigmatizes mental illness in a way? Look, I'd, I'd really hope so, and I think, like, I I do think that it has been um, positive, and I think I'm sure that there's been there's been masses of changes, and we've probably still got a way to go. But I think the fact that you know, that your two young people having a podcast about mental health is, you know, speaks probably volumes. Yeah, and that's that's what we try to do here, break down the big important <laughs> issues as well. Good job. <laughs> um, a bit of a boring but necessary question. So as Aussies, what are we entitled to um, in terms of accessing mental health resources or facilities? How do we go about that process? Um, so recently it's actually just changed. So I think for what, so one way of accessing service would be go to your GP, I think, go primarily to get a good GP, go to your GP, speak to them, you know, they should be able to your first point of call and should be able to help you. And that would, might mean actually putting you on a mental health care plan. So until almost a couple of weeks ago, that meant that everyone in Australia could access 10 sessions with a psychologist that has a rebate, um, Unfortunately, a lot of psychologists still, you know, charge a gap. So that means it's not accessible to everyone. But there are services where they're low cost or no gaps. Um, But recently, because of COVID and um, the recognition of the stress and distress that people have been under and the lobbying for such a long time, the government have just increased that to 20 sessions of Medicare rebated um, sessions a year. And that will continue for the next two years. And it's also just another probably point that has sort of only come out in the last year is that anyone who's experienced an eating disorder 
who is assessed by their doctor as having an eating disorder can access up to 40 sessions of Medicare rebated sessions with a psychologist. So that's a huge win for for people experiencing pretty significant um, mental health issues. Definitely. What entitlements are there beyond Medicare? How does someone access mental health services? Look, it depends on your, probably your age. So different age groups probably access services in different ways. I think if we're sort of thinking about young people, so, you know, anywhere from sort of 12 to 25, one of the access points other than sort of your GP could be school. Um, a lot of schools have a school psychologist or a wellbeing, at least a very least a wellbeing teacher um, or person who can help coordinate access to a service, um, hopefully parents. If not, somewhere like Headspace is an awesome service where you can, you know, you can self-refer. You can actually just do a group chat online and then help get connected to there's no cost to accessing that service. And then there's also not only just one-on-one counselling provided somewhere like Headspace, but there's also groups, there's online groups and there's more of a social um, aspect as well. Yeah. And just touching on that point about you said education as as a key point of access after COVID-19 as well um, the Department of Education and Training which is the government body um, in Victoria that controls public schools um, they significantly increased the amount of mental health workers making sure that there was there was at least one mental health worker in each school so that kids could access so definitely some expansion since COVID-19. So it sounds like there's lots of um, really great services, but as you mentioned earlier, over half of people with mental illness don't access treatment. And when I was looking this up, I actually saw that they're half as likely to seek help than people with physical disorders. So what are the barriers stopping people from seeking mental health help? Why does this happen? I think it's a range of factors, again, um, which is probably a bit vague, but um, (laughs) but I I think... um, probably stigma and we, we need to remember mm. stigma within families and culturally and then within wider community groups and within even school communities potentially as well so that's one I guess one factor I guess access to services so we've got to think about where someone actually lives are they living in the city or are they living in a regional town where there might be one psychologist um, also the cost of service you know there are there are free services but there's long waiting lists at the moment too so that that unfortunately is an issue for a lot of people to access services. Mm. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important to remember that um, a person does not exist in a bubble. They exist um, in in terms of their social environments, their physical environments, and all these things impact their ability to access mental health services. So what kind of reforms are being pushed at the moment by mental health professionals um, what what are what are we needing to do better essentially? I think that there has been a big lobbying for increasing Medicare rebated sessions. So that you know that twenty sessions was actually a really big deal because that's been spoken about for a very long time about the increased need for sessions for people. Um, so, but I guess also just increased funding. So it's a, a highly um, underfunded system, and and we know that just because of the levels of people accessing service but also the fact that our stats are so high around people committing suicide every day so we know that at least six Australians will commit suicide in any day Um, and we know that that's not accounting for all the people that will also attempt um, in in any given day also Um, so you know I guess funding around prevention intervention positive mental health 
but also trying to make sure we can access people and um, give them access to services who maybe aren't on that severe end of mental illness where they don't need to go and live somewhere, but they, they still need intervention. So we need, you know, increased supports and services for those people who are experiencing anxiety and depression where maybe maybe they're not meeting a full um, diagnosis or criteria, but they still need support. So maybe it's within schools, for example, and positive health promotion within schools. The other thing that um, I think, Vanessa, you touched on as well was probably this idea of um, a need for coordinated care. So for people with highly complex mental health needs, and even for people trying to access the mental health system, that can be really difficult. So we need to get better at providing a system that supports people to access services and coordinates sometimes multiple services that are involved. I'm already so glad we got you on the podcast because this is all great stuff. This is I'm just sitting here in awe. I'm, I think Vanessa and I are both not saying much because we're just listening to every single thing <laughs> you're saying. We love it. We love it. Yeah. Um, so there's a massive trend that's been bubbling and especially fueled this year by the events of 2020 around wellness and all-encompassing health. And I want to know what you think about this because I've definitely seen competing commentary where some people say it's great to promote mindful mental health practices, but... Some say it's condescending to tell someone with an anxiety disorder to meditate when they need to be medicated. Um, This is an interesting one. I have lots of thoughts about this one. So my first thought was it's awesome. Like I love people talking about mental health. I think one of the really good things during the pandemic is people actually having real conversations about their mental health, how they feel. Um, just really checking in with people, not not just kind of superficial kind of, um, I guess, just asking how are you, but actually people wanting to actually know how people are because I guess we all knew that people, we all felt distressed. Um, I think that kind of where maybe what you're questioning was, you know, things that I probably saw on Instagram where people are talking about being positive during COVID or being positive in general and being grateful Um, you know lots of those posts about being thankful but I think that that can take away from people's real experience and you know it doesn't really speak to someone who's actually experiencing um, you know a a severe mental illness where it's not just enough to be positive that actually do need access to proper service I don't know if that answered the question or not no it definitely does I think what you explained earlier about the difference between mental health and mental illness comes into that a lot as well um, yeah, mm. toxic positivity is not going to really help anybody. No. Yeah, yeah. So just to sum up, in your personal and professional opinion, um, what is Australia's greatest mental health challenge moving forward? Mm, what a big question. <laughs> I don't know that I'm qualified to question. answer that question. Um, look, I, I do think that it's probably the level of anxiety that I, like, I worry about the level of anxiety and stress that young <laughs> people hold, lots of people hold, but particularly young people. Um, just, I think, given the pressures around, um, that's just these constant messages that are received in social media and just there's no escape, but also something that you touched on with sort of Indigenous culture is that sense of connectedness. And I think that a lot of people, unfortunately, have lost that sense of connectedness. And we saw during a pandemic where we couldn't be as connected how, how, how much distress and how um, detrimental that was to people's mental health. So I guess that, that really worries me. 
Okay, so now it's time for our recommendations. So we'll let our guest go first. Julia, what would you recommend the listeners check out? Look, given that you're all young people, I'm assuming, I like. I think that go to Headspace. Headspace has um, a great website, headspace.org.au. There's great fact sheets. There's great helplines. There's access to chats. There's access to different groups. You can organise to see a counsellor. Um, I just think that that might sort of help as a one-stop shop and then, you know, I guess from there you might find different kind of links. The other thing to, um, I know, I guess during COVID, the government did set up another service called Head to Help Hubs. So they were set up to help you find a a service and provide linkage. So their number is 1-800-595-212 and you can access that service in your local community. My recommendation is a video about Indigenous mental health, which is particularly important as it is NAIDOC week at the moment. Um, And it discusses that relationship between sort of social, emotional and mental well-being, particularly in terms of, you know, your relationship to culture and community. Um, But it also touches on how Indigenous mental health is a direct result of the years and years and years of intergenerational trauma from you know, British colonisation. So how that has um, shaped Indigenous mental health today is still very visible. And for my recommendation, I'm going to throw a spanner in the works and recommend (laughs) something that's not actually tangible for once. Um, And it's the concept of grounding, which is basically just going outside and putting your bare skin, for example, your feet, onto solid earth, for example, the grass. And it sounds very airy-fairy, but it's something I find really brings me back to clarity and everybody I've ever recommended it to has said the same. So, um, yeah, every listener, please go be a hippie in the grass. You'll love it. (laughs) Some good recommendations. We have an educational one, we have a practical one, and then we have, you know, an airy-fairy one. I like it. (laughs) (laughs) That's it from us today, Julia. Thank you so much for coming on. No problem. Thank you so much. We've really really enjoyed having you here julia you've given some amazing insights into mental health that i think both vanessa and i will will continue to look into and thank you to all our listeners for once again tuning in we hope you enjoyed this episode let us know what you think Um, we're interested to hear your thoughts and as well let us know if you prefer these interview type episodes because we definitely do so we're we're wanting to see if you do too yeah we love having to getting to chat to people Um, In the meantime, follow us for more short, sweet and simple Aussie content on Instagram and TikTok at Australia Explained Pod. All the info is in the show notes for you to check out. See you next week. Bye. Bye.